this is yours. Yep. Thanks, Ben. Um, I'm going to invite you to open up to two places in your Bibles this morning. And so if you're on a device, you'll be able to just sort of flip back and forth, you know, with a couple of clicks. If you've got a hard copy Bible in front of you, we're going to start with Galatians chapter four. So kind of get yourself open to there. And then if you've got something you can, like if it's just, you kind of put your finger there, if you've got a ribbon or something you can put in Hebrews chapter one, we're going to work with both of those passages and you're going to want the ability to sort of flip back and forth and look at them both. Uh, a few different times. And so as you get yourself situated in those two places, I want to follow up on something that we asked everyone to do a couple of weeks ago. And so if you were here uh, a few weeks ago and you filled out the little piece of paper that's, that tried to project which Christmas Eve service you were going to go to, I want to say thank you. Um, we have some follow-up from that. The follow-up is we don't feel like we need to add an extra service. So one, three, and five o'clock, those are going to be our service times on Christmas Eve. But there, there are a couple of things I want to pass along in relation to that. Thing number one, it would appear that three o'clock will be bonkers. Um, not like so out of control that we don't think we're going to have enough space, but definitely far less personal space than you've been used to over the last 20 months, let's say. Um, five o'clock is going to be less bonkers than that. And one o'clock will be bonkers free. So we had some people who, when they filled out their little sheet of paper, they said that they could come to either, you know, this service or that service. And there were some who said we could come at either one o'clock or three o'clock or either five o'clock or three o'clock. If you were one of those either or situations, and it is possible for you to either go at one o'clock or five, we would really appreciate that. If you're someone who's either watching with us online, listening via the podcast, or you're even in the room here right now, and you would like to have a little bit of space, uh, one o'clock is definitely your friendliest option. Five o'clock would be your next, and I would encourage you to not come at three um, if that's going to make you uncomfortable. The other thing I want to pass along is that we're offering childcare in the three o'clock and the five o'clock service, and we've got three o'clock completely covered, but if... Um, if it would be possible for you to volunteer in childcare during five o'clock, we could use some more volunteers to make sure that we've got space for the children that will need childcare in the back. So if that's possible and you can do that, contact either Libby Skillman or Catherine Cole and they can work with you on making that happen. One, three, and five o'clock. Sound good? Awesome. Um, let's pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Like Ben talked about, uh, like he prayed, Lord, would you help us in this Advent season to center our hearts on the reality that our comfort and joy are in Christ, that we find comfort and joy in him, not just during this season, but every day, that we can look to him in real time for comfort and joy, whether that's in relation to the minor inconveniences that happen in life, Lord, or whether it's in larger periods and seasons of life that are filled with darkness and difficulty, sometimes suffering and waiting. Christ is our comfort and joy. Help us to remember that this morning. Help us to celebrate the wonder of Christ's advent among us. God, speak to us through your word. Would your Holy Spirit take its truth, 
Press it deeply into our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Melody and I, we are like a couple episodes away from the, the most re- finishing the most recent season of the Great British Baking Championship. Anybody watch that? We like all sort of baking and cooking shows, um, but we really latched on to the Great British Baking Championship because kind of the thing in American cooking or baking shows is that they make the time constraints so tight that right from the beginning, it's utter chaos in the kitchen there the whole time. But in the Great British Baking Championship, I mean, literally, they're like drinking tea. Uh, Time is not the constraint. Usually they want space for those bakers to be able to produce the best thing they can to the point where typically at least once an episode, there's, there's a shot of just a wonderful British individual staring into their oven, drinking tea, like that's all they have to do. Uh, They gave me four and a half hours to complete this challenge and I've got 40 minutes of staring at that thing, baking in the oven. I can remember as a child when, you know, either we'd be waiting for something to be cooked for dinner or cookies or brownies or something like that to bake and you're so excited to eat the thing that you are, you're just like staring at them willing them to hurry and be ready to eat. That idea of sort of expectant, anxious waiting, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we're working through Advent, we paused our series and rather than doing Advent by looking at the stories of Jesus's birth as they're recorded in the Gospels, we decided to look elsewhere in the New Testament, which talks plenty about the coming and the Advent of Jesus. And so we're taking those passages and allowing them to be the lens through which we spend four weeks here as a church anticipating the coming of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the reality of sin. And as Paul David Tripp says, we had to get sort of comfortable with the very, very bad news of Christmas so that we can truly appreciate the very, very good news of of Christmas. And so we did that through Ephesians chapter two last week, and we talked about the reality of sin, that the nature of humanity is such that we are in sin and sin is in us and therefore we are dead and disobedient and doomed unless God were to do something from outside the system, which he has done in Christ. Tim Keller talks about that whole idea this way. He says, Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else because it tells you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come for you. That's the very, very bad and good news of Christmas. Sin is so staining that there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. And yet God, as Ephesians says, in his great mercy, sent his son to us and for us. And now rather than sin in us and us in sin, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your deepest reality is Christ in you and you in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. The hope this morning is to take kind of one logical step forward from there. Last week, we said that in Advent, we sort of join with Israel in the mourning over their sin as they wait for Jesus. This week, we're going to talk about the waiting part of that. And we're going to do so with these two passages, Galatians 4, 4 to 7, and Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And so if you've got your Bible open there on your device or sitting in your lap, I'm going to start with the Galatians passage, and then we'll jump to Hebrews. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4, says this, when the time had come to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. That is Galatians 4, 4 to 7. This is what Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 says. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Waiting, longing, expectancy. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the the end sort of big theological idea today is this, that the long progression of eternity arrives at the perfect fulfillment of, of God's promises. What I want to do this morning is take these two passages. We're going to draw out some Christmas similarities that exist between both of them. And then we're going to join Israel in the waiting, sort of like we did last week with joining Israel in their sin. And then we'll finish by talking about what all of that means as far as waiting and patience go in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so if you flip back to Galatians chapter 4, Outside of the gospel accounts, the New Testament has plenty to say about Advent and Christmas. Jesus's arrival or presence or official visit with his people. And the consistency of the Bible is amazing. Just in Galatians and Hebrews, we have two different authors writing to two different audiences with two different purposes at two different times. And yet the consistency of what they have to say is absolutely amazing. And so I wanna just give you four similarities between these passages. And the first one is this. They both talk about the reality of the advent of Jesus. If you're looking there at Galatians chapter four, when the time came, God sent his son. There is the advent of Jesus. If you flip to Hebrews chapter one, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Two small but glorious statements that God broke into the world from outside the system. He sent his son and his son has made his advent or his official visit among his people. Both passages talk about the supremacy of Jesus. So if you flip back to Galatians chapter four, when the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman. There's the first thing that is supreme about Jesus. He is truly God and he is truly human. Sent his son, God's son, born of a woman. And then you go on. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. He's redeemer and he's mediator, that he holds this position between God and humanity that only he can fulfill. And then if you flip to the Hebrews passage, in these days, we're told in verse two, he has spoken to us by his son. God appointed him heir of all things. He is the inheritor of all that is God's, of all that is the Father's. And then we get two phrases, that God made the universe through him. And then if you jump down a little bit further, that Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. The idea there is that Jesus is Lord of everything. 
Jesus is the active agent by which the will of the Father is brought about in history. Part of that is seen in the act of creation. Jesus is eternally existent. And in the act of creating, he was there. He had always been there. He was uh, active in the process of creation and thus he is owner of everything. And then with sustainer of the universe, he's still the eternally existent son of God who is Lord of all. He's active in the process of sustaining the very universe in which we inhabit and he remains owner of everything. And part of what the New Testament authors are establishing is that this man was more than a man. He was, he is, he will always be God the Son, Lord of all, owner of everything, inheritor of everything, sustainer of everything, creator of everything. And what was true in creation is true in redemption. Redemption is God's great ultimate act and Jesus is the active agent by which God brings about the redemption of his people. He wasn't merely a man who preached well and then died. He was a man who preached well, lived perfectly, died substitutionarily, and now has redeemed his people. He's Lord of all. He's the apex of human history. The point of all of that is that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the literal definition of extraordinary. Both Galatians and Hebrews point to the reality that Jesus is unlike anyone who has ever come before him. He's unlike anyone who's ever come since. And he's unlike anyone that will come in the future until he comes back again. The third similarity is that both passages talk about the gracious gifts of Jesus. And so in the Hebrews passage, or the Galatians passage, we're told that one of the gifts that Christ has given to God's people is the gift of redemption, that he's redeemed us from slavery, we're told. Part of what Jesus has done is he has bought your freedom. Freedom from having to try to save yourself through perfect obedience. Freedom from slavery to your fleshly, broken inclinations and desires. You've been redeemed by the apex of human history making his advent among us. Hebrews talks about another gift. That in these last days, God has spoken by his son. He's appointed him the heir of all things, made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and has made purification for your sins. Purification, that's a gift from Jesus. You've been washed clean. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ is in you and you are in Christ, and that means you stand in his gleaming white perfection rather than in your dirty stained brokenness. That's the truth of what you have thanks to the work of Christ. And the last similarity in these two passages, the one I want to really pick up on, Galatians 4.4 4 starts this way. When the time came to completion, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. And then verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The final similarity is that there's this perfect timing that came with Jesus. And we sort of blitz by those two statements. When the time had come to completion, yeah, 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 yeah. Get me to the rest of it. Long ago, God spoke this way. In these last days, he spoke in this day, this way. Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Tell me about Jesus. But those two small phrases, long ago, but now, when the time had come, those are doing some heavy biblical lifting. You can see that 
by just literally staring at your Bible, two-thirds of that is the Old Testament before Jesus had made his advent among us. Those two small phrases represent two-thirds of the biblical narrative. They're packed with a very important message. And that very important message is that it was a long wait for Jesus to come. That's where I I want us to camp out over the next few minutes. The long progression of eternity arrives at the perfect fulfillment of God's promises. And so to illustrate this, I want us to take sort of a brief walk from creation to Christmas, from serpent in the garden to savior in the manger, from Satan at Eden to Jesus at Bethlehem. And so this is just going to be a timeline. The... uh, tech crew has lovingly referred to this as Pac-Man. We're going to join Israel in staring into the oven for a few minutes. Because where all of this begins is with Adam. And Adam is described in the Testament as the first federal head of all of humanity. Pre-Christ, everyone was in him. And because of Adam's sin, we're in sin and sin is in us. It's that sin that leaves us dead, disobedient, and doomed, and therefore desperate for Christmas and the advent of Christ among his people. And with Adam and Eve's sin comes a promise from God. Genesis 3.15, God says that one day, someone will come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's a promise. That the head of Satan, the author of sin, would one day be crushed. From that point forward, God's people and all of humanity is waiting for the one who would do that. And the Old Testament biblical narrative then starts to focus in on not just the people of God as a whole, but as certain individuals within the people of God. And with each of them, you get the sense that had you been an Israelite individual, you might have thought to yourself, maybe this is the person. And so the first really big figure is Abraham. He's the father of God's people. He gets clarification of and further expansion on this promise from God that someone's gonna come and crush the head of the serpent, but Abraham is not the one who fulfills them. The one who fulfills that promise will come through Abraham's people. That's part of what Abraham learns, but he's not going to be the one who does it. And so humanity continues to wait. And right after Abraham, you get brief little looks at Abraham's son. You get Abraham's grandson. Then you get Abraham's great-grandson. And none of them are the answer. And the next big figure that the Old Testament biblical narrative focuses on is Moses, some thousand years after Abraham. Moses is a mediator between God and God's people, the Israelites. He stands between the two. And provides clarification via the law of everything that is sin. Everything that's opposed to God's righteousness and holiness and justice. In fact, it's because of that law that we get a really clear picture of the depth of the reality of sin. Just how big the problem actually is. But Moses is not the one who can crush the head of the author of sin. He can't do it. So humanity continues to wait. Right after Moses comes a man named Joshua. 
And it's Joshua who's gonna lead the Israelite people into the promised land, out of their time of wandering in the desert, into the promised land. And that feels like this would be the moment. We're going into the land that God has promised us and surely he's gonna fulfill this other promise to crush the head of the serpent. And so Joshua is this courageous leader who takes them into the promised land. And once they get there, it is an utter disaster. Like you would think they'd sweep into the promised land and they would live in the fullness of all the promises of God, but they sweep into the promised land and sin is on full display. Brokenness from start to finish. And so humanity continues to wait and in their waiting, they start crying out for a king, but God does not give them a king. He starts to give them judges. And these judges are deliverers of God's people, literally. The, the story of Judges, one of the darkest books of the Bible, is this downward spiral of sin. The Israelite people start worshiping other people's gods. They're living in idolatry. Another group of people are raised up who oppress them, oftentimes force them into either slavery or subjugation of some sort. They cry out in prayer to the Lord. God graciously lifts them up a judge who delivers them and there's a small period of peace that doesn't last for very long because Israel goes straight back to their sin and the whole book is just like a toilet bowl of this is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and it doesn't matter if it's Ehud or Shamgar or Deborah or Gideon or Samson or any of the other judges. They're momentary deliverers who don't ultimately fulfill the promise to crush the head of the serpent. And so humanity continues to wait. And after the judges, they get their king, Saul. And maybe now, this is gonna be the person who finally fulfills the promise. But it is evident right from the beginning that Saul is not the answer. Get that guy out of here. Give us someone else. And along comes David. And there's this great glimmer of hope because here is this man who rises to power as king and he silences Israel's enemies and he's got a heart to lead God's people toward obedient worship to God. He wants to build the temple. He's worshiping, you know, sort of with reckless abandon in the full sight of God's people, but he's far from perfect. He's riddled with his own sin. And he doesn't do what God promised would happen. And so humanity continues to wait. But there was some clarification that came through David's life that the one who would do this head-crushing sort of work would be the son of David. Someone from his line and from his tribe. And so guess who rises to prominence next? David's literal son, Solomon. Well, this has got to be it. He rules through a time of peace and prosperity, but it's actually the comforts of that peace and prosperity that actually prove to be his undoing. The comfort that he experiences in that peace and prosperity end up being the exact things that ensnare him in sin. And there is a sermon for God's people today in that that we'll have to tackle another time. And though Solomon is the wisest man to ever live, he is not the one to crush the head of Satan. In fact, as is the case with all of humanity left to its brokenness and sin, sin crushes Solomon. Solomon does not crush sin. And after Solomon comes a litany of kings, fallible rulers of God's people. And the kings of Israel do as much as anyone to put the focus and the display of sin on the grand stage. 
When the people of God fracture into two countries due to the pride of its leaders, the worship of God is obscured by humanity's bent toward worshiping that which is not God. And during this era, most of the great prophets of Israel come and go and they're calling God's people back to worshiping God. They're offering further clarity about the one who is to come, but none of these kings is able to do what God promised someone would come and do. And so humanity continues to wait. And after the era of the kings comes Israel's exile, then their partial return and 400 years of silence. And by the time this silence rolls in, the one that we're waiting for to crush the head of the serpent has to fit an almost unthinkable list of qualifications and prophetic requirements. This individual is going to have to be greater than Abraham, the father of God's people, greater than Moses, the mediator between God and God's people, greater than Joshua, this courageous leader, greater than all of the judges who delivered momentarily, greater than David, who was this glimmer of hope, greater than Solomon, who ruled in peace and prosperity, and greater than all the kings on display with all of their brokenness. And he has to accomplish the one thing that God said he would accomplish, and he must fit all the criteria of all the great prophets that have come to Israel. He's got to succeed where everyone else fails. He has got to prevail where everyone else has collapsed, and there's just deafening silence from the Lord. In the words of the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining for what? They're pining for the one who would fulfill God's promise in a way that since Genesis 3 has become increasingly mind-boggling. And so why walk through all of that? Why play Pac-Man on the screen there? Because the wait was long. Israel's wait was not four tidy weeks before Christmas. It was thousands of years. The promise was good, the promise was glorious, but its fulfillment was very long in coming. Generations of people lived, hoped, longed, prayed, looked, sought, and died without the one coming who would crush the head of the serpent. This was fathers and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. In fact, just take that 400 years of silence. America's only been a country for 245 years. There was silence from God for 400 years that came at the end of thousands of years of already waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And then Jesus is born. That's why that hymn, O Holy Night, says, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Because the one who would crush the head of the serpent was finally born. Just go back to our passages. When the fullness of time came, one was born who was truly God and truly human, who is the heir of all things, the Son of God, the eternally existent Lord of all, the purifier, the redeemer, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah was born. And yet, the birth was so ordinary, so non-glamorous, so quotidian, that everyone's looking around saying, I don't know. Maybe. Is this him or not? 
And so Jesus spends his life proclaiming and demonstrating that he is the long-awaited one. He gives his life. And in his death and in his resurrection, he finally delivers the blow to Satan that had been promised since Genesis chapter three. Here, O humanity, is the one that you've waited for. And everybody's a little uncertain. But the one who isn't uncertain is Jesus because before he was born at Christmas, he knew about the cross at Easter. Before he was sent to the manger, he knew that he would be sent to the cross and that it was at that place that he would strike the fatal blow to the head of the serpent. The king of kings made his advent among his people. In the Advent season, part of what we do is we join with Israel in feeling the burdensome weight of that longing. In the Advent season, part of what we do is we join with Israel in relishing the thrill of hope that came with Jesus' arrival. And in all of it, you get this reminder. At the long progression of eternity arrives at the the perfect fulfillment of God's promises. And the question becomes, what does that mean for us in everyday life? How does the season of Advent and helping us join with Israel in the waiting also help inform our living with Jesus, our obedient following of Jesus, our faith-filled relationship with Jesus? Stepping into the longing of Israel gives us the big theological reminder that God is moving all things toward the certain fulfillment of his promises. Big theological reminders are nice, But it's often helpful for our hearts to have some smaller, more practical things to grab hold of. And so I want to offer three of those to you this morning. The first one is this. The short progression of life moves toward the perfect fulfillment of God's promises. What's true in the macro, in the big theological scheme of things, is also true in the micro. What's true on the very, very large stage of eternity is true on the very, very small stage of your life. It's one thing to accept that God is working all things in all of history toward accomplishing his purpose and displaying his glory through the redemption of his people through his son. We can wrap our minds around that and kind of say, okay, sure, I get that, praise God, now what? The true life of faith happens when the big theological truths in our minds are captured by our heart and they're brought to bear on our everyday realities of life. When done correctly, theology fuels our devotion. When it's done correctly, theology feeds our worship. It's one thing to say in your head that God is moving all of history toward faithfully fulfilling his grand and glorious and good promises. It is another thing for our hearts to take hold of that from our brain, rip it down to the level of everyday lived experience and say, because I know that that is true, it also means that he is being faithful to me today. Those are two very different acts. To say one thing in your mind and for your heart to grab hold of it and apply it to everyday life. It's one thing to say, when the time came, God sent Jesus, fulfilled his promises. It's another thing to say that in my season of waiting and struggling and suffering and difficulty, God is being faithful to me in Jesus. That doesn't mean that we're always going to get our way. It doesn't mean that we're always going to get our way on our timetable. But it does mean that God is going to display himself faithful to his promises. Not just 
even if that faithfulness does not arrive in the form I want it to, but especially when that faithfulness doesn't arrive in the form I want it to or on the timeline that I would like for it to. And Christmas and Advent give us that reminder. They remind us that we can trust in the dark because of what we have seen in the light. We can trust in the dark seasons of life and longing and waiting because of what we have seen in the light of God's word. If I took you to a house that you had never been to before, to a room that you had never seen before, and I flipped on the light and I let you stare at everything that was in there for a couple of minutes, all the furniture and where the end tables are and where the lamps are, and then I flipped the light off and I said, make it to the other side. You might stumble and sort of fumble your way through that room, but what you saw in the light would inform how you move through the darkness. That's what our big theology about God's faithfulness to promises ought to do for us. I get that in the big progression of eternity, God's moving all things toward the faithful fulfillment of his promises. I've seen it in the light. I get the reminder of it every Christmas. And in the dark, when I'm fumbling my way through difficult seasons of life, what I've seen in the light can inform how I move through the darkness. God was faithful to Israel, gloriously so in a way that everyone can see. He's been faithful to all of his people, gloriously so in ways that everyone can see. Jesus didn't look like his people thought he would. He didn't come when they wanted him to. But when the time came to completion, God delivered as promised for his people's good and for his glory. And the same is true in our lives. So we enter into Israel's waiting. We allow Advent to remind us that even on the small stage of our lives, God will deliver for his good or for our good and for his glory. And that will always be true. In fact, in the waiting, we learn to long for the things of the kingdom We learn to long for the things that God wills. Sometimes, maybe more accurately, most times, it's the very act of waiting that breaks our selfish, often sinful longings and molds them into God-glorifying kingdom longings. Truth number two. Patience is both a command from God and a gift from God. God commands that his people be patient. In fact, when you read the various imagery and verbiage in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you get the sense that one of the defining realities of living in relationship with God is learning to be patient. Scripture is full of patience, perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. The New Testament is full of illustrations that involve farmers and their crops, which is a long process. Our flesh most often says, now. God most often says, when the time comes. And as with all of God's commands, what he asks of us, his grace provides to us. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, something that the Holy Spirit supernaturally delivers within the lives of God's people as they grow in their dependence upon him and their likeness to him. And praise the Lord, because if it were up to us all by ourselves, we would be hopelessly lost. Margaret Thatcher famously said, I'm a very patient person when I know I'm gonna get what I want. That's not to make fun of Margaret Thatcher. That's to highlight the challenge of patience. How our flesh interacts with waiting. 
When we enter into the Advent season, we gain the reminder that waiting is a crucial classroom in the school of following Jesus. God is working to fulfill his promises in the macro and in the micro, but he is not working on our timeline. In fact, rarely does our desired timeline align with his sovereign timeline, but he will be faithful. We need only to wait expectantly. He commands our patience and he empowers our patience. That's the good news of the gospel. And truth number three, all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All God's promises to his people in the Old Testament, they're fulfilled in Jesus. All God's promises to his people today are no different. That's not wishful thinking or some clever turn of phrase by a preacher. Scripture literally tells us as much. 2 Corinthians chapter one, every one of God's promises is yes in him. Capital H him, that's Jesus. Every one of them. What God promised to us is fulfilled in what he has given us in Jesus. What God has promised, he has, he is, and he will fulfill in Jesus. And Advent is the reminder of that from the past, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all God's promises of deliverance to his people. Our hearts can go back to Jesus's birth and get the comforting reminder that God delivers on his promises and he does so in Christ. I wanna sort of take all of that and try to bring it down to like the very nitty gritty reality of actual life. And so I'm gonna do so through the lens of my own life. And I've shared about this before. But in, in my own waiting and in my own longing, God has sort of built within me, particularly over the last year, a specific rhythm. Melody and I have wanted to be parents for a decade. 10 years of longing for that. But God did not promise me children. God did promise me that he would be present with me in my waiting and my longing. God did promise me that he would be comforting in my hurting and in my weeping. God did promise me that at the end of all things, after all of my tears and all of my aching and all of my heart sickness over the thing that I wanted when Jesus came back and took me to be with him, that God would wipe all of those tears from my eyes and what I experienced in that moment would be far greater than anything he could have given me that I wanted. That doesn't make the longing any easier. It doesn't make the waiting go any faster. It doesn't make the wishing and the hoping any lighter. And over the last year or so, I've been repeatedly drawn back to Psalm 23. Now there's the parts of Psalm 23 that we're all most familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He quiets my soul, renews my life, leads me along right paths for his sake. Even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But there's a one sentence statement at the end of Psalm 23. Verse six. Only goodness and mercy or goodness and faithful love will pursue me 
all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy dwell in the house of the Lord. Now every promise that God has made is fulfilled in Jesus. And I've got to get square with the things that God has and has not promised me. And he commands my patience and he empowers my patience. And on the small stage of my life, God is moving everything toward the perfect fulfillment of his promises and every single one of those promises have found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Psalm 23 tells me, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, they're following me in Jesus. That in the deepest hurt, in the deepest seasons of suffering, in the darkest nights of longing and waiting for a thing that maybe God didn't promise me, he has said, goodness and mercy are the only thing following you. And he's fulfilled that promise to me in Christ. In all of my weeping and crying and longing, God says, I have faithfully fulfilled my promise to you and Tim, it is goodness and mercy in the person of Jesus. I promise you that. And I've given that to you. And I'm going to give that to you. It's not that goodness and mercy are just chasing after me like I'm running headlong away from them and they're trailing behind me in my wake. No, Christ in me, me in Christ. Literally, I am in the goodness and mercy of God and the goodness and mercy of God is in me because Christ is in me and it's everywhere all around me all the time in Jesus. And if that is where the verse ended, that would be good. But he also says, and you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, oh, I would just look forward to the day where I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and that's fulfilled in Jesus and one day he's going to come back and he's going to take me to be there with him physically and bodily, but that's not the whole picture because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me and think back to last week, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father right now. Like I dwell in the presence of the Lord now. You, seated in the sanctuary, watching from home, listening on the podcast, you're in the presence of the Lord now, right now. You're dwelling there. And it's only goodness and mercy. And it's only because of Jesus. It's been fulfilled for you. And so we're not primarily people who stare into the oven and tap on it, hoping that everything moves a little bit faster. No, we're experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus now, brothers and sisters. Like that is your reality. Jesus made his advent among us in the past. He will make a second advent among us when he returns and he is advent with you right now. Present, his official visit is there among his people and every promise is being fulfilled. Are you awake? Like that is such wonderfully good news. 
Like that is the beauty and the truth and the hope of the gospel is not that we are people whose primary experience of life is one of longing and waiting. We are a people whose primary experience of life is one of fulfillment in Jesus. Every single one of God's promises fulfilled in Christ. And in our longing and in our waiting, God is not holding out on us. He's continually delivering in Christ. Advent offers those gentle reminders that he came, that he is coming, but brothers and sisters, that he is here now. God fulfills his promises. He commands and empowers us in our waiting and in our longing, and he delivers on every promise in Christ Jesus, ever, always, gloriously so, for the sake of his name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together and we'll sing.